If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Uh, yeah, let me just repeat the thanks to everyone for coming out, um, defying the BBC uh, panic. It's been very interesting to watch on, on, on my hotel television. Um, they're all, it's, it's like a disaster with snowmen. They're all really in a panic, but they all keep stopping to build a snowman to show they can, they can do it. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit of this book, and I'm going to read a, a fairly uh, antic part of a book that has very somber things and very antic things in it. Um, there are these guys who are hanging out, um, the narrator and, and two, of, two of his uh, nutty friends, and um, uh, this is just, a, in a way, a typical example of what happens when they're uh, spending time together. Um, I don't think I need to explain it uh, too much more than that. I just need to find it. Um, the uh, Yeah, here we go. Um, the, the, the narrator's name is Chase, and he's a kind of a washed-up child star, a TV actor who doesn't even do that anymore. Um, <clears throat> am I coming through okay here? And, um, and his, his friend Perkis... Uh, is the host. It's Perkis' apartment they're, they're hanging out at. And then this other friend, Richard Abneg, is kind of the, the center of this sequence. And Richard is, um, uh, well, he's got a problem in his apartment building, which you'll hear about. Richard Abneg came in enraged about eagles. He liked to come in enraged about something. Hadn't I read the front page of the Metro section? The answer was no. Richard found this incredible. My neglect of the headlines was practically as egregious as the birds themselves. Richard nearly slammed down his bottle of wine, Rioja in a paper sack. He always arrived with one in tow. Perkis tossed the relevant section of the newspaper into my lap and resumed rolling a joint to welcome and soothe Richard to whatever extent he could be soothed. Richard jabbed his finger at a newsprint photograph so my attention wouldn't wander. It showed a pair of enormous birds, perched on the massive lintel of a pre-war building's entranceway, each with a beak-borne branch. 
Between them stood the object of their efforts, a conical structure of twigs and leaves. The headline read, Homecoming of Mating Pair Rewards 78th Street Faithful. Okay, I said. Not okay, said Richard, poking harder at the newspaper on my knee. That's my fucking window. (laughs) You live there, I said, trying to catch up. My headboard's right against that wall, he told me, right above the scratching, whining, gobbling fiends themselves. They don't sound like you'd think eagles should sound, Chase. They sound like vampires, vampires at a buffet of dying rodents. It's your window, I said. Can't you have the nest removed? You really do live in a cloud, don't you? Perkis had finished tonguing the new joint's glue, and he handed the result to Richard, then carried the story forward. So, he said, about six weeks ago, Richard opened his window and pushed the whole mess into the street. The eagles went into mourning, started wheeling around crying, and all the TV news stations picked it up. The eagles flew off to Central Park, I guess. It seemed like it was going to blow over, but then the other apartments got together and held a press conference saying they loved the eagles that the lone pusher didn't speak for the building's wishes. Richard got hung out to dry. That's what they called him, the lone pusher. Richard picked up the story. The president of the co-op board didn't give my name, mercifully, he said, but I've had to creep in and out of the building for weeks. The New York Post published a telephoto picture of me in my Fruit of the Looms. Now the feathered monsters are beginning again with their nest, and everybody's so thrilled. I'm totally stuck. There's this bored old television star on the eighth floor. She's made the Eagles her whole raison d'etre. What television star, I asked. I had an odd feeling I knew. You know, said Richard. He slurped air around the joint's tip, waved his hand. Uh, What's her goddamn name? Sandra Saunders Epling, supplied Perkis. She was married to Senator Epling for a while. She was the one who spoke at the press conference. Sandra Saunders played my mom on Martyr and Pesty, I said. I felt, as I often do at these rare times I actually choose to speak of my child stardom, as if I was boring my listeners with information too familiar to mention, and yet also evoking a distant pocket realm no living human could imagine. In either case, the result felt as though I were being humored. Perhaps I did live on a cloud. Right. That's the one, said Richard. He was uninterested in anything but his nest. He sees the newspaper section from me now. These days, she's a kind of fundamentalist vegetarian eagle advocate. It's horrendous luck for me she doesn't have a real career to keep her busy. My whole building's brimming with mediocrities and has-beens. The whole island's brimming with them, said Perkis agreeably. Yes, said Richard, but your bedroom isn't full of the smell of moldering underbrush and the death screams of squirrels and pigeons and sewer rats. Look at this. He handed the fuming joint to me and raised the newspaper for us to consider, folded to the photograph of the eagles in their startlingly large construction. It's obscene, he said. It's practically pubic. Yes, said Perkis. Your building is definitely wearing a merkin. (laughs) That's the polite word for it, said Richard. He stroked his beard, perhaps unconsciously making an association. I, I, I don't think Merkin is the polite word for something, I said. It's, it's more specific than that. They ignored me. Read it to me, said Richard. Perkis had taken up a book I saw now, The Field Guide to American Predatory Wildfowl. It was flapped open to the entry on eagles. Perkis had already delved into study on Richard's behalf. 
I've got to find some way to eradicate them, said Richard, some way that can't be traced back to me. I guess if you got a dog, it would bark at them, I suggested. They ignored me again. No, it can't be from inside my apartment. It has to be something that will crawl up the front of the building. Besides, I hate dogs. We were deep, I saw, into crime melodrama here. A caper, Richard and Perkis collaborating on the perfect interspecies murder. I'm going to need an alibi, too, said Richard. I can't be anywhere in the vicinity when those eagles go. The building is already ready to come after me with torches and pitchforks. So, said Perkis, here's the thing. Majestic in his privilege, he narrated from the field guide, the bald eagle knows no natural enemy apart from man. What afraid of shit, said Richard. Why? There's something totally insane about saying a frigging psychotic serial killer has no natural enemy. What they mean is the eagle's enemies don't stand a chance. All those mice and squirrels and pigeons, believe me, they'd gladly define themselves as enemies in that instant before the talon tore through their hearts. In nature, I said, I think a thing doesn't qualify as your enemy if it can't fight back. It's just a victim. Maybe we could corral a whole bunch of mice and squirrels and pigeons together, suggested Perkis, if they somehow were all to run up the side of the building at once when the eagles were sleeping. He flipped eagerly through the guide's back pages, perhaps scanning the index for some precedent. No, Richard said. He leaned forward, grabbing for the joint I still held. He took it and drew in a puff and shook his shaggy head. No, it won't do. His grave tone suggested real deliberation. Pray is pray, he said. I'm sorry to have to disenchant you two dreamers, you total communists. If you'd heard them whimper and die the way I have, you'd understand a million mice couldn't do it. Didn't mice kill the dinosaurs, said Perkis? Richard shook his head. The dinosaurs were stupid. They were on their last legs. Anyhow, the mice had help. They needed comets and glaciers, all kinds of stuff. I'm pretty sure the mice just jumped in at the end and administered the coup de grace, then took all the credit. We need a predator, said Perkis. Exactly, said Richard. Maybe we should go up there, said Perkis, the three of us. Not now, but later when it's dark. We were always those days. Perkis and Richard and I on the verge of some tremendous expedition, like Vikings spreading nautical charts across a knife-scarred table, laying plans for plunder. Oh, how Manhattan yearned for our expert intervention. Yet we never budged from that kitchen unless it was to tumble out coughing into the fresh, chill air and around the corner to pile into a booth at Jackson Hole for cheeseburgers and Cokes. The thing about animals, Perkis said, I remember this clearly, is that when you bring in, you know, kangaroos to chase away monkeys, then you have a kangaroo problem. Then you bring in zebras to chase off the kangaroos and you're overrun with zebras and so on. You learned that in a Dr. Seuss book, didn't you, said Richard. <laughs> what about the tiger, I said. What if somehow the tiger could be brought into play? There's a tiger that's loose in this book, destroying parts of the Upper East Side. Perkis gave Richard a look of horrified helplessness, seeming to say at once, don't blame me, I didn't suggest it, and, well, why not? Richard just tittered. The tiger, he said. Sure, I said. Yeah, that's just what my apartment needs, Chase. That tiger destroyed one of the city's primary water mains last week. I mean, totally shattered layers of concrete and brick that it held since the 19th century. It's going to take months to repair it. Okay, I said. Well, maybe the tiger could be blamed somehow. Richard snorted smoke through his nostrils. Blamed, you mean, when I off the eagles? Sure, I said. 
Brilliant. At this, Richard Abneg dissolved in giggles, sweeping Perkis along with him, and soon enough, myself too. Blame the tiger, we began to chant. Blame the tiger. Let this stand for a typical night in our company there. I don't remember them all in such detail. Thanks. Thank you. Great. Okay. Good. Well, welcome to London again. Thanks, Tom. Um, last time we met, it was in Brooklyn, of course, in uh, in Smith Street, of course, and uh, and kind of hanging out in that in that neighbourhood, that whole kind of area, you know, around Smith and Atlantic and Pacific and so on and so on. It really struck me not just how much of of that neighbourhood and, and and of that part of Brooklyn is is in your books, but also how much your books have kind of, um, you know, uh, etched themselves into the consciousness of, of the, of the neighbourhood. I mean, I, I had a, an advanced reading copy of this book because we were doing this crazy marathon all-night reading that you got your acquaintances to, to, to take part in. And anyhow, I was in this bar beforehand, and the barman said to me, oh, wow, do you know, my best friend used to work in a bar that's mentioned in Motherless... He said this with such pride... You know, and then I was at a party before because it was quite late, my shift on this marathon. And someone else said, do you know, I, my house is next door to Henry's Stoop in, in uh, Fortress of Solitude. So you've kind of like become the, the new laureate of, of Brooklyn. And I guess part of um, your duties, right, as being laureate of Brooklyn, entails a certain disdain. You're meant to show a certain disdain towards Manhattan. Yeah. So in Fortress, it's just somewhere where you go and score drugs and then come, or maybe go to CBGB's, but then you go back to Brooklyn where the action is. Kind of reminded me of in, in Alex Trockey's Kane's book. He, he's also mm. way out on the margins in this scow in the harbour, and he describes the outline of Manhattan as like a mirage in which I was not involved. And... Uh, but, but here in Chronic City, you have crossed the bridge. You've plunged right into the mirage. So, so what, what drew you there? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> you know, growing up in the, in the outer boroughs, uh, Brooklyn or, or Queens or one of the other unnameable zones, I think Manhattan is a very uh, charged place. I mean, it is, Manhattan's charged for everyone. It's the whole world dreams of Manhattan in a way. But in, in that proximity, um, it's, it's a double thing for you. Because like anyone, anywhere, that skyscraper skyline and the, the projections of power and privilege, the, the, the notion that this is a kind of, um, you know, the first great secular capital of human history, the place where anyone would aspire to go to, to make themselves... Uh, great in some way uh, you know the, the role it serves in American mythological life and in some ways in the whole world's mythology is true for you there in Brooklyn as well it's right across the bridge but it still has all that symbolic power and mystery um, and, and loathsomeness too I mean Manhattan is to be, to be despised and dreaded because of its power and privilege just as it's a place of you know, aspiration and, and, and yearning um, but it's also right there. You can get on the subway, you know, when you're uh, where I grew up. It's three stops away to get under that river. And, and I, you know, for the price of a subway token, could go and uh, buy a slice of pizza and walk around Greenwich Village and feel it was also mine. And there's this double concept. Brooklyn is very proud of its separate identity 
very defiant about being other than Manhattan. But then again, we're all New Yorkers. We can feel a sense of possession. So it was there to be had, and it was tangible. It was a place. And I knew from being there that it was at least partly an ordinary place. It was neighborhoods. It was people. It was, you know, old ladies shuffling along the sidewalk with their shopping carts, just as I saw in Brooklyn. It wasn't all exotic. But there seems to be like almost a kind of ontological difference, right, between between Brooklyn and Manhattan in your books. Because whereas your Brooklyn is very material, it's all about, you know, um, um, beer... Uh, tops ground into the right. melting tarmac or the, or the cracks on the slate sidewalk or the kind of hot, gooey consistency of the air on a summer's day and so on and so on. All these really kind of material, visceral, evocative images. Manhattan, on the other hand, in Chronic City, tends towards not only abstraction but almost like virtuality yeah. in the kind of gaming sense. You keep using this metaphor, it's almost like we're, we're just avatars in some, yeah. Lucid, yeah. in some game. Well, I, I began to think about Manhattan in the 21st century as having achieved some um, maximum amount of unreality. And I think uh, New York City in general, Manhattan in general, has served as a place formed as much by concept, by, you know, possibility, and and by the power of abstract things like money and, and, uh, you know, power uh, all along. In a way, it's the dry run for the for the virtual century that we're entering now. You know, it's the first virtual place. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people think of it in these terms. It, the, the sentimental way to think about Manhattan is to, for instance, take a, a, a thing like Times Square and say, it used to be real, and then they tore it down and replaced it with a simulacra of itself. And in a way, you could say that of all, all of New York City, that it's, it's a, a, a reconstruction of, of a previously real concept. I mean, this this plays out massively in the book. That yeah. This whole the, the, this this kind of standoff between between the real the idea of the real, which is a problematic idea, yeah. and the idea of the simulacra. Right. Well, as it's well. that it's that problematic idea of yeah. the real that I'm I'm very interested in because I think you know it's a very old question or a very yeah. old let's say a very old inkling to think wait uh, this is a fake version of a of a real world. It's not a real world, and I I don't think that that's a unique condition. To, to have that inkling, not unique to New York and not unique to this moment, but the question has changed. Yeah. It's t- to ask whether everything is real or fake um, isn't a new it isn't a new problem to have, but it it's it in ha- Plato. has a <laughs> it has a new context. Yeah. So the question yeah. has changed, I think. And um, Manhattan just seemed to me a perfect uh, emblem of this mixed yeah. up, you know, yeah. the, the 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 newly. Um, inextricable mixture of yeah. real and unreal um, and, seemed to play itself out there. And then you have, you have it replayed in the, uh, the kind of micro, at uh, the object level. My favorite thing in the whole book is, is the children. I don't know, even know how to pronounce it. Children. Children. Yeah, I say children. Children. So, yeah, I don't know what it means. And, yeah. you know, which is a kind of, it's this most beautifully formed kind of vase yeah. that maybe exists, maybe doesn't exist. Do you want to talk us a bit through the kind yeah, of genesis I can. of that? I, 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 it's such a hard book to paraphrase because of all this in, weird But everyone's stuff. obsessed but with this. It's, the, it's children, the, the children is, is this... Yeah, wants. it's a MacGuffin. It's an object of ultimate desire. And, and uh, uh, it's funny, I haven't seen Avatar yet, but somebody said that there's an element in Avatar called unobtainium. There's a kind of, <laughs> okay. They're trying to get this precious metal, which is called unobtainium, which suggests that it's not going to 
not going to be easy. And uh, <laughs> Chaldron is probably made, the, the, the material is probably un- unobtainium, right? Of course, in a way, it comes out of uh, Henry James' golden bowl. Yeah. Or any, anything seem, seemingly prosaic piece of treasure that is charged with so much human desire and yearning that it becomes the impossible object. Um, I mean, because it's, you know, in the book it's described as a simple ceramic. So if you couldn't get one, maybe you could just make one, commission one. But the whole point is that you can't get one. Yeah. And you'd be terribly disappointed if you could. Um, it's the chase. So it's a, it's a kind of, you know, um, uh, ideal of virtual longing that, right. that, that dogs these characters. <laughs> the sense that they're, they're always on the outside looking in at something, you know, that would redeem them, that would make their lives complete. There's these wonderful passages where, like the passage you just read, they're kind of getting stoned in Perkis's apartment and, and they're trying to buy one on eBay and it's just going up and up and up into the tens of thousands. And, but there's some wonderful lyrical passages where you kind of talk about the thingliness of things and how it stands even beyond thingliness while seeming to hold the whole mesh of thing relations in place. And then Richard <laughs> says, this sounds like retarded Wallace Stevens, which it kind of does, but in yeah. a really good way, you know, stoned Wallace Stevens maybe. Yeah. But, but it, and, and it also has this kind of economic, you know... Well, um, of course, anything that, that it, in, in our, you know, what, in late capitalism, anything that anyone, everyone can want yeah. has a price tag. Even if you can't get it, you can try to pay for it. Yeah. And, um, and but at the same time, it seems to kind of critique... Capitalism, because it's beyond money, or you say it's beyond hyphen or aside from money, or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Which is well, and and that that's one of the questions I think the book is haunted by: is can you get outside money? Yeah, can you get outside money in Manhattan anymore? Can can is bohemianism possible? I mean, this is partly about the the fading possibility of a you know um, countercultural lifestyle yeah. in you know in a world of money. Well, this brings us neatly to. You know, um, the main character, or, or the main, whatever, the, the, not the narrator, but the kind of the Kurtz character, the main, the person who stands at the heart of the book, Perkis Tooth, who yeah. is this kind of embodiment of, of the counterculture, perhaps of a kind of almost, I won't say defeated, but a counter, counterculture really on its last, you know, if capitalism is the eagle, it's, it's the mouse, you know. <laughs> and um, and he's, he seems to me a kind of recognisable, skillful um, weaving together of various quite recognisable figures, like maybe Grell Marcus or Guy Debord. Yeah. And I thought, thought a bit of William Burroughs was in there. And I mean, do you want to talk us sure, through yeah. the genesis of Yeah, purpose? it's so funny because I, 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 I have gone around uh, in my American book tour kind of uh, admitting again and again that there's a kind of a, a, a real person behind Perkis Tooth. And it's not as famous a name as those you mentioned. Um, it's a, a kind of lost uh, rock writer named Paul Nelson, a guy who um, I knew when I was in my uh, early 20s who had actually given up writing or almost given up writing at that point um, and had devoted himself to other obsessions. He was into film noir and, um, and collecting uh, first editions of uh, Ross MacDonald novels and... and um, he had a gigantic collection of hand-lettered videotapes that he captured off uh, late-night television. I mean, back before there was uh, DVDs or or YouTube, or, or YouTube, it was hard to curate pop culture. Now it's effortless. And so he was a sort of maestro of secret 
histories. You know, he had, uh, you know, anyone could 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 be interested in Citizen Kane, but he had, you know, all these difficult to see at that point almost discredited late Orson Welles films on these grainy grainy videotapes, and he would talk to you about how important they were. And now everyone knows this, but then it seemed like a kind of um, almost a conspiracy theory yeah. to care that deeply about vernacular culture, these lost cultures. And um, Paul, my experience of being, in a way, kind of mentored by Paul and also finding him impossible and frustrating uh, is at the emotional center of the portrait of Perkis Tooth. But yes, I was thinking, of course, of all of those crazy heroes of, of um, cr- critical theory and, and um, cultural cur- curation like uh, Grill Marcus and um, some of these are American names that I don't know if they carry over here much at all, but um, Leslie Fiedler and, you know, kind of self-appointed, um, self-invented uh, critical yeah. uh, paragons. Um, Seymour Krim, um, yeah, he's forgotten even in America. Uh, and um, a guy named uh, George Tro, who wrote a book called In the Context of No Context, you would love this book, Tom. I mean, it's a tremendous uh, piece of um, left-field uh, cultural criticism. Right. Absolutely bizarre, but he totally predicts, well, internet culture, for instance, uh, and writing in the 70s. Right. Um, I mean, I, I guess, you know, in, in a way, in, in terms of that kind of cultural criticism, I mean, another figure I was getting sensing behind Perkis was Walter Benjamin, uh, Walter Benjamin. Yeah. I mean, this kind of... And this idea that, that, that cultural... Criticism cannot just be an academic act. I mean, Perkis is not an academic. You yeah. know, that, that it can be a form of political activism, actually. Yeah. Well, I, I'll consent to all of this. It's, it feels very flattering in a way to com- compare him to Benjamin. But it's worth saying Perkis is much less than any of these people because he's also a totally failed writer. He's unable to, to, to commit uh, to anything except rants, really. Yeah. He doesn't put words on paper like all of these heroes that we're mentioning. Um, he's in a state of total rupture uh, as a, you know, as a public, it, he imagines that he has a public life, but no one else would agree that he has one. He's a, her, he's a hermetic figure. Right, but isn't there a kind of inverse heroism in his total refusal? I mean, another figure I was getting yeah. behind him was Bartleby, yeah. right? I mean, the writer who doesn't write, yeah. the guy that this just total refusal as, as a completely untranslatable kind of... Yeah, he's a stuck, yeah, he's stuck. like a Bartleby yeah. uh, or a Beckett character in some yeah. ways, like Crap's Last Tape. He's yes. kind of <laughs> in he's the room surrounded replaying by his, his, yeah. t- his tapes over and over again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, lots of, almost in a way, I mean, all of the characters in the book are failures. I mean, Una, Una Laszlo presumably wanted to be a great novelist when she left mm-hmm. college, and now she's doing these crappy um, um, ghost yeah. biographies As of, told of, to of, of, of faux serious yeah. artists and sports stars. And I mean, you know, Chase and Stedman, the narrator who just lives off his residuals from his uh, his child's uh, TV movies, and. And in a way, I mean, and Richard Abneg, I mean, he's, he's, we should talk about him, actually, because he's a very interesting yeah, character. This is the he's guy with the eagle, the the eagle, guy with the eagle, eagle problem. problem. Because yeah. <laughs> he was a kind of radical squatter activist and a, and a hero of the Tompkins Park yeah. riots of the, when was that, late 70s, early 80s? Uh, the Tompkins uh, Square Park riots were actually uh, 1988. Oh, well, late yeah. 80s. But, but they represent a, a very definite last gasp of a kind of um, pure radical, you know, the possibility of, squatters rights yeah. in, in, which is such an absurd phrase to even 
you know, bring into the conversation in Manhattan anymore. I mean, now it's just, are there even going to be rent-controlled apartments anymore? Right. But there used to be a very strong squatters yeah. movement Because r- Richard used to kind of, you know, be this figurehead of that, and yeah. now he works for the man, he works for the mayor. Yeah. And, he, and the first time you meet him, actually, he's a, it would be very easy to make him a two-dimensional hate figure. I'm sure I would have done. <laughs> but you, you actually, you know, you, he's very, very interesting, Richard, and, and, he, and he's, yeah, he's quite, com- he's very compelling, and and his first kind of speech is about he 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 talks about he rationalizes life's arc of excruciating compromise. It's a very good phrase. I mean, do you see that basically as our political condition? Compromise. Well, you know, I mean, if you look at what has happened to the left it, it, within the the official, you know, uh, left of center party in American political life, you know, under the stewardship of like someone like Bill Clinton, it was sort of um, losing more slowly was the only way you could yes. win. The, way, the, the same way they'll brag right now that um, uh, joblessness is, is down by fewer points this month than it was the previous month. Uh, that's a, a positive economic indicator, is the, the, the slowed rate of, of job loss. Yes. And you know the slowed, the slowed rate of leftist failure under Bill, Bill Clinton is claimed as the kind of, you know, his heroic eight years of yeah. um, finger in the dike, uh, yeah. you know. Um, and so, so yeah, sorry, that was terrible. Yeah. And, and cigars. Yeah, it wasn't actually eight years of that. Yeah. No one could do that. Um, the, the, so Richard Abneg is, yeah, he's, he's a, a hero of, of, um, of compromise. Yeah. And he really believes it. But then I was kind of thinking, just yesterday, I was thinking, well, who are the successful artists or the successful agents in this? But and, and there are two of them, right? One is, is Linus, mm-hmm. the, the creator of the Childrens. He, right. he creates the virtual program that make Childrens seem yeah. real. I mean, that is a successful artistic project yeah. to make the unreal seem real. And the other one, following that line of thought, is the mayor. Mm-hmm. Because he uh, and, and his mechanism sustains the illusion that this astronaut floating above... The planet is actually, you know, I'm sorry if there's any spoilers here, but you know, it's it's worth kind of discussing that 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 she is exactly as as the papers are portraying her. Yeah. I mean, they successfully create illusions, illusions which stories. are stories, stories. which yeah. which enable people's lives in not entirely yeah. bad ways. Actually, yeah. they're but quite benevolent. There's, a, there's another artist figure that I always want to defend in in the book, and that's uh, even though he's very ponderous, the sculptor. Oh man, he's, he's an asshole. Yeah, I know everyone. Everyone <laughs> hates him, but I'm very, I'm very dedicated in a way to the idea that he's trying to make something that will wake people up. Yeah, you know okay. these okay. these awful. There's a sculptor who he's like um, uh, an earthworks sculptor, like Robert Smithson, um, who makes gigantic holes in the ground, but in New York City where um, they ruin people's lives and destroy neighborhoods and. Um, he's a kind of, um, you know, emblem of the. Well, I mean, Perkis calls it too late modernism. Yes, <laughs> but but he is trying to make something a, a kind of a scream, loud enough. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. To wake people out of their their trance. The holes, I mean, let's talk about these holes because, I mean, for for a book that's so much about consumption and and luxury and excess and the excess of stuff you can buy and consume, there's a lot of there's a lot of holes in the book. I mean, they go and eat at Jackson Hole, which yeah. turns into a hole when the tiger, right. uh, whatever the thing is, you know, literally um, pulls its foundations away, and there are. I don't know. There's loads of holes all over the book, aren't mm-hmm. there? And 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 then you know, in another of your books, the the the, the and um, and she climbed across. As she climbed across the table. Yeah. There's, there's, it's all about this kind of black hole. And so, what, what interests you about about holes? Well, I, I guess I mean I, it's pretty obvious that in my work, I'm always looking for a, a bigger, more effective metaphor for 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 loss. You know, I, I write about amnesia persistently, yeah. Yeah. and um, you know, I I grew up in a what in retrospect seems to me a series of rehearsals for this theme. You know, my I was born in 1964 in a in a family of radicals and bohemians. Uh, my father was a, an un, unfamous painter, and my mother was a passionate but frequently defeated left activist. Not quite Richard Abneg because she never sold it out, but she was, you know, always uh, marching in hopeless causes and and. Um, Organizing, you know, uh, events where she'd end up arrested, you know, for for some um, public, uh, you know, for, for for sitting on the Capitol steps or, um, you know, so a, a kind of um, a, a family that was uh, going to come into the '70s and see their ideals kind of slowly eroded, and and then and then very completely crushed by the Reagan era. And New York City in the 70s, when I came of age, was a kind of dystopian city, a place that had been uh, manifestly, people understood it. It had been great before, and now it was ruined. You know, And the idea that New York could ever come back to the kind of power and middle-class complacency that it's got now, you know, if you look at the crime films that were made, the image in a film like Death Wish or or the you know French Connection, it was it was a given that the city was an abysmal, you know, it was a, a place of disaster, and so I grew up in a kind of fallen city in a in a falling apart counterculture, um, and then my mother died of cancer. So I you know the idea that the things you cared about were always falling apart unsustainable, but you had to kind of go forward anyway, that there were going to be giant m- missing pieces. Your family would be destroyed, you know, the, the, um, the, the left would be destroyed, um, the, the hippie dream was, was not going to work, it would become a joke, in fact, um, but you had to kind of care anyway. So again and again in the books, everything's taken away. There's a giant black hole that sucks away what you love. And 
this book, in a way, you know, as, as much as I'm sending up these characters for being self-involved, um, you know, kind of solipsistic Manhattanites, I also care very deeply about the world of meaning that they're trying to hold on to for themselves. They're a kind of counterculture, yeah. uh, too. And they're trying to ignore the gigantic gaping holes in reality that are arising again and again. You know, the stuff that's being taken away. Yeah. It's like the sh- scenery being shifted while they weren't looking. Now, there's a total fondness as though they're in, you know, as you say, they're in some big theater and they just, I mean, it's a Calvinist idea. We're just acting out, you know, some, some script of someone else. And, and somebody, at the, well, there's this motif that goes through the book that maybe, we, maybe this is all just a video game and we're the avatars. But then shouldn't we be good avatars? Mm-hmm. Because then the player will want to carry on yeah. playing and we can carry on living this hallucination. Right, well, if, some, if, someone, and, if someone is playing you, you should want to be fun. Exactly, right? yeah. It's a nice, there was in, I, I know you've read it because you've loved it, um, Steve Erickson's Cyroville. There's, yeah. there's that very nice thought. It's in Sean Coxo's Orfei as well, yeah. actually. They say yeah. we're being dreamt by someone else, but yeah. let's be beautiful. Yeah, it's an ancient motif. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have any claim on it. It's just my... No, but you, it's very succinctly. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's kind of nicely yeah. put in this kind well, of. Well, and I actually, virtual, I, I um, uh, give a nod to Zeroville, the band, the punk band. That's right. Imagine that's a punk right. Band yes. in this book yes. is called Zeroville. Yeah. One of, of my, of course, I yeah. Uh, you know, uh, possibly aggravating in jokes. Okay. <laughs> Should we let some people come in? No one ever wants to be the first, so I'm going to ask one more well, question. While yeah, ask one more while people think it over. Think I know it's also particularly hard uh, to join this conversation because the book is so newly published in the UK that probably we're talking to people who more haven't read it than have read it. So I should say, ask me questions about other things. It doesn't have to be about Chronic City, okay? If you want to ask me about an an earlier book or some other thing that you think I have uh, something to say about. That's fine, too. I just want, want to ask about the tiger, because, you know, it's, it's this leitmotif throughout the book. There's a tiger on the loose. And then quite early on, Richard Abnegg, who works for the mayor and, and has, you know, privileged information, says it's not a tiger. You know, there's this digger that's gone wrong and it's eating up bits of streets. That's just a convenient myth. So, you know, you set up this opposition. Either it's true or it's not. And then, right towards the end, this massive fucking... Tiger. I mean, it's beyond a tiger. It's like some uber tiger just stalks through, you know, flashes across some of the the, the final sequences. Which is, it's, but it's kind of interesting because because this seems to. I mean, this reflects on all your books. I think the 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 kind of reality field that they're working in. I mean, I know you're into Carol. I know you're into Philip K. Dick. Yeah. And 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 so on. But it seems to be. It's not the same as magic realism. That's a s- stupid term, anyhow, for stupid books. <laughs> and, and it's different, you know, it's different than that. There's, it, it, there seems to be like this third term. Uh-huh. I, you know, you, you think either something's real or it's not, and then there's a, a yeah. kind of a third possibility <coughs> which is bigger than. I mean, do you want to. Yeah, I, I, I'm just kind of. Descri- I love your description of it, and you're certainly on to me when you talk about Lewis Carroll, who's, you know, in a way at the root of everything I, I yeah. do. I mean, I think even my, my very first book, you know, everyone wanted rightly to say, oh, look, you're smashing together Raymond Chandler and Philip K. Dick. But the more obvious, in, in a way, ground that I stand on, it's a book full of talking animals. You know, there's someone yeah. wandering around meeting the talking animals, which is Alice in Wonderland all over again. I think I'm always doing that, uh, in a way, recapitulating my first experience of, of um, understanding that, that writing could take you into this... Uh, this double experience because the thing about Alice in Wonderland is she's not unnerved 
that the animals talk. It's, it's a given. That's taken for granted. What's unnerving is that they have such irritating personalities or that they present <laughs> her with so many strange problems to solve, you know, that she gets caught up in their agendas. And it's this taking for granted of the strangeness that mattered so much to me when I first encountered it. And that's what I'm constantly working into my books um, in different ways. But the tiger also originates with something even more uh, near at hand in a way. And that is, except for the tiger, all of the many animals in the book are very real. I mean, New York, okay, London is paralyzed by snow right now, right? One of the things that happens in New York again and again is that someone will see a raccoon or a, a, a coyote will cross the with the uh, George Washington Bridge and get into Central Park and the entire police force will be mobilized. <laughs> or, or the city will become obsessed as they really did with nesting eagles who some tenants want to evict from the, the outside of the building and others don't. I mean, this was very much a real news story that I incorporated. And, uh, or there's another mention, very brief one, in the, in the book um, where uh, I can find this... Um, uh, a, a whale swims up the river, and um, well, uh, the polar bear as well, isn't it? The floating. Yes. That's not in New York. Well, right, that's not in New York. But um, okay, yeah. Yesterday, a minke whale, its motives perhaps deranged by ocean fungus, had wandered up the East River. The headline read: "Frolicking visitor delights hearts." comma, and then dies. <laughs> that was a New York Times headline. I just quoted it verbatim. But the city gets transfixed by these intrusions of the natural yeah. world. It's as though New York City really believes it is a city of the future from which the natural environment has been excluded. And so it's a kind of shocking, morbid you know, metaphor, come to claim us or, or unsettle yeah. us. If the slightest sighting of... And people get very sentimental. There are swans in Prospect Park and um, these two swans were fighting territorially, as I suppose swans always do, two males over the rights to the pond in, in Prospect Park. And the entire neighborhood went into camps, one favoring one swan and one favoring <laughs> the other. It's, it's so compelling. So yeah. it, it, the innocence, the, the naivete of New Yorkers confronted with a bit of the natural world, it's like a shattering encounter every time. So I wanted to kind of take that idea to, to the maximum to by introducing the, the, yeah. the tiger but into the throughout book. the book I mean I really <clears throat> I noticed this as I started rereading it it's absolutely infused at every level with kind of animal um, imagery yeah. I mean Perkins even has a raccoon screensaver on his, on his thing and yeah. all of the characters have an animal like Georgina Hawkmanagi it's called the Hawkman yeah. and I mean I think several others of them have kind of animal and it made me think about you know the, the kind of the role of nature in the book I mean yeah nature's been excluded from it and then Again, sorry, I keep talking about stuff towards the end, and, and but this—I don't think this will spoil it. Again, there's a there's a very beautiful passage near the end where he's remembering his time with with Janice, and there's there's a lake. It's a kind of Edenic thing. I mean, yeah. it's prelapsarian. It's where the children frolic and yeah. fornicate and stuff. Nature, you know, and it's in the past, and it's not here and not now in the city. And I mean, you you have a similar kind of. Uh, Edenic scene in, in in Fortress, right? With with the Vermont girl. Yeah, they go off to Vermont in the and, middle of the book. Yeah. I mean, w- would you? S- is is there that kind of almost biblical kind of? Of course, that and but also and it's you know, it's from the perspective of the, you know, the urbanite who's been offered this fantasy as a, a, a dream of purity and doesn't know whether to believe it's accessible or not. Um, 
you know, would, would you equate it with the real then? Is that the elusive well, that's, real? The, the temptation is to equate it yeah. with the real. And, and the animals in the book are there, you know, the dog especially is there to yes. tempt yeah. the idea it's that... It's called Eve, right? Or Ava. Uh, Ava, I mean, yeah. 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 And um, yeah, they're there to <clears> say, you know, her, in a sense, have you forgotten the life of the body? Have you forgotten yeah. to, you know, you know, just eat and, and shit yeah. and fuck and just be a body in the, in the world? Although, in, very interestingly in that respect, in, in that Respect, Ava is um, missing a limb. Right. But she's still got three. <laughs> and he does sleep with her. I mean, Perkis sleeps in a bed with her. Yeah. Right? Sexual relations. Yeah, he's, he's I mean, the nearest he ever comes to, to her to, girlfriend. To her girlfriend, yeah. yeah. Um, let's, let's let people in. You must have... Okay, there's, uh, there's a guy there. Can you, Did can you, you want to wait for the mic? mic? Yeah. <clears throat> I have read um, three, three quarters of the novel, and I, I just wanted to um, ask quickly something about, um, um, I suppose, the theme of what you were saying about the counterculture and being um, being sort of more and more excluded. Um, and, I, and I, I mean, I, I, that's clearly there in the book. But, I, but I, there's also this sense that the counterculture is is sort of right at the heart of of you know, it's Perkis lives on the um, Upper East Side. And you know, and all these kind of loser characters—they're—they're they're right at the centre. You know, they go to the sort of the mayor's dinner party, right. and 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 sort of—I don't know—money, money is kind of dominant. But at the same time, there's a—I don't know—rather sort of a sense in the book that it's no one takes it that seriously, or, or there's a kind of another kind of life that's um, out there. And I—I I, I, just—I just wondered about that. I mean, well, I mean, is, I, I, do you think that's a sort of feature of New York, particularly? Well, or? I, I think it's very interesting. What you're making me think is that the book is about a second currency. A social currency. I mean, w- very early on, the the, the ladies who, who take Chase in as a pet, you know, and like to have him at their dinner parties, hear that he's got this friend Perkis yeah, Tooth, and they, who is they start tooth? to want to have him as another yeah. uh, item of social currency. And uh, Chase thinks how strange it is that Perkis could function that way. But in a way, he does. It's a fantasy of access that sometimes is granted. The artists are sometimes suddenly at the mayor's table. Um, and it is part of the... Uh, you know, it's one of the marvelous things about New York City, even if it can lead to uh, shattering juxtapositions of privilege and exclusion. Uh, those juxtapositions, ju- juxtapositions do occur because everyone lives in this crazy uh, maelstrom where social currency can sometimes cut through the other uh, form of the other economy. Uh, thanks, uh, Lee Rock over here. <coughs> Um, you've touched upon the anthropomorphic nature of your work, um, and through that I kind of see you as a kind of modern um, fabulist in that sense. Um, there's that moral stance, there's that warning. Is there early fables that have kind of influenced or you've been kind of drawn to? Yeah, well, I, I did read uh, Aesop's fables very devotedly when I was a kid. I don't ever think about them anymore, but... Actually, I know every time I hear them referenced, I realize I know that one, and it it sank into me, sank very deeply into me. But I'll I'll say, uh, you know, following on this anthropomorphic, you know, secret that's not very secret, that's really obvious, that it doesn't. You don't have to go to anything fabulous, like or 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 to something like Aesop or or Lewis Carroll. You can go just, for instance, to Charles Dickens, and I I've written about this. The one time I wrote about Dickens, that he's really all his books are like the wind in the willows in a way. You can see which animal every person is. He always gives them animal 
a secret identity as an animal that, that's very obvious. Uh, the way they talk, they, they crow or they, or they chortle and they, they scurry. They're all, you know, everyone's a badger or a stork or a, you know, a, you know an, a, an ermine or something. You can always tell. Uh, so that's, I think, just worth mentioning because it <laughs> breaks down this uh, binary of realism versus fabulation. I don't think it's always, um, for me anyway, uh, a neat division like that. Uh, um, Matthew Dear Baker. Uh, do, do you think the current era particularly inspires the these kind of uh, relationship between the real and the virtual? You couldn't write in any other way at the moment. Um, it's it seems very exciting uh, question to to engage with right now for sure. And I you know one of the things that I I um, think about as I talk about the book is whether or not it's you know stuck in time or, or place whether it's really a book about Manhattan in the middle of the, the first decade of the 21st century or whether uh, those are superficial descriptions and I, I, f- I kind of go back and forth um, I do feel in a way that uh, I'm usually in the same way that you know when you read um, well J.G. Ballard or Philip K. Dick, the specific technologies or or media that they've gotten very um, that sort of obviously activated them. You know, some some new form of advertising that Philip K. Dick has gotten paranoid about. Um, that usually gets them into what they're writing, and then they sink to a deeper layer where they begin to uh, engage with questions that are actually very timeless. So you always have this doubleness where it seems like a con- kind of contemporary satire or a, a kind of dark, um, you know, inquiry, a kind of, you know, critical inquiry into some very new, um, you know, uh, anxiety triggered, triggered by something in, in history or, or the, the history of capitalism or the history of technology. And then the writer reverts to sort of Philosophical matters of, you know, uh, or ontological questions of just what it is to to be a a brain dreaming your way through existence that that aren't um, limited to the to that to that triggering notion at all. And I I would like to think this book sinks to those kinds of layers too. Um, but I but it's it's a long book, and I kept. In a way, I was writing it in you know in real time. I conceived it in two thousand and four, and was reading these headlines and sticking them into the book, and watching the book sometimes accidentally predict things, and and I was excited by that uh, layer of inquiry. I didn't I didn't leave it behind. Oh, okay. We've got three here. Uh, let's let's take this one, that one, and that one because then the mic can just travel in a in a line. Um, on the face of it, all your books are very, very different, um, although sharing similar concerns. What do you think the uh, great perils and the great joys of being so eclectic are? Well, I mean, I, I, I always wanted to be that, that kind of writer, and I, I, I thought it was the most um, ideal sport. And then I also thought the writers that I love most are helplessly themselves anyway. The more they try to do something different, the more um, they reveal themselves. 
so I don't think there are any perils uh, creatively. I mean, it took three or four books stacking up before I, I felt that people could begin to grant me the freedom that I, that I was demanding to do different things each time. And then, and then weirdly, that became the, the calling card. You know, um, I, was, I was the disappointing guy. Uh, who, who, wouldn't, who wouldn't write that book again, no matter how much you said, said you loved it. And it was particularly problematic because I introduced these detectives, and people always think you're going to write about a detective again. Um, unless, unless he's dead at the end of the book, it's, it's a, like a given that he's going to have more adventures. But I, I don't know. I was just doing what I, what I was interested in doing each time, and, and um, it also reflects uh, changes in my reading, new things that I found to get excited about. You know, I couldn't have um, written uh, As She Climbed Across the Table until I fell in love almost calamitously uh, so with Don DeLillo. And then I had to almost write around that experience, like a, you know, a, a grain of sand had gotten in, in, into the shell and I needed to put some kind of sealant around it and, and make something of my own around it. So there was this DeLillo infatuated book. Um, and, you know, and so it's a, it's a history of my reading as well. Okay, so we had one just here, and then there was the guy in green. Um, apart from our hysterical responses to the weather, uh, what do you think of London? Oh, well, I love being in London. I, and I have been uh, a whole, whole lot. Um, Faber's brought me over a couple of times before uh, very nicely to do things like this. But also, I've gotten to sometimes just come and uh, stay in a neighborhood for a couple of weeks and you know, uh, even work a little bit, write in cafes and try it on for size and shop for books a lot. I'm very excited about bookshops every time I'm here. I'm, I'm leaving too quickly this time to do any of that, which is frustrating. You know, as a reader, I mean, you heard some of the names that I mentioned, uh, from Lewis Carroll to Dickens and, and others that I haven't mentioned that were, uh, for me, at the heart of discovering that I wanted to be a writer, like Graham Greene, and uh, you know, or, or in later encounters uh, like Iris Murdoch, and so I've lived in London in my mind as much as I, I have anywhere. I mean, it was a place that I I, I knew I would have to uh, care about um, because I already did, and and um, I feel very at home here and very interested here. Uh, naturally, but also the, the language unites uh, the cultures. However, so however get, much get London you guys don't want us on your back, uh, there's just this very intense. For me, you know, I, I didn't I didn't read American writing. I read writing in English, and so much of it, so much of what I came to love, came out of an English tradition. So I just I feel like. It's a you know for me the the strangest thing was when I was published only in America and I wasn't yet published here because Faber got on to me with Motherless Brooklyn by that time that was my fifth novel I felt in a way my writing life was very incomplete because I wasn't speaking back to the the whole English language you know I wanted to be I wanted my books to live here the way English books lived in me so it was very very gratifying when Faber kind of came and retroactively fix that all, all of a sudden you know um, then, then I felt okay now I'm now I'm going this is this is good you're, you're not tempted to there's a whole line of Americans from I know Elliot to, to Pynchon in fact who've 
written brilliantly about London. Are you tempted to... Yeah, that, that was what I was really... Oh, yeah. Well, I, sorry. I'm <laughs> just blathering on without catching the question. Um, yeah. I don't know. It could, it could be. I, I mean, I, I, I surprise myself at how stuck I am to, to New York in a way. I've already started another book in New York. And I've lived in other parts of America, and I've, I've lived briefly out of the country. You know, I lived in Toronto on and off for a couple of years, and I've spent as much as, you know, a month in Europe <coughs> feeling very interested, very excited to be here. And so I, I think about taking opportunities that have sometimes been given me to live in Europe for a longer time. I, I think I'd have to do that to write about it. Yeah. The Man in Green. Hi, Jonathan. I've been interested in things you've written recently about what you call the ecstasy of influence or the kind of promiscuity of texts and stories. And you alluded earlier to people would rather kind of schematically say about your early fiction, oh, it's Chandler meets Dick, or it's The Searchers in Space, or it's Don DeLillo meets, you know, kind of quantum uh, science or whatever. And I was wondering, in a sense, whether the way you approach novels is almost like the way Marvel comics would do a special issue, Hulk meets Thor, or Spider-Man meets the Fantastic Four, in which case, you know, there is a sense in which the new novel could be the kind of L.A. fiction of Philip Dick or Steve Erickson uh, writing Humboldt's Gift, you know, well, Dick meets uh, yeah. Bellow. Is, you know, is, is, or, you know, that makes it sound rather schematic, but it can be as simple as, you know, the Beatles trying to write an Everly Brothers tune, and then Paul puts a Motown baseline on it. Do you right. ever right. think about kind of rubbing genres up against each other? Is that a way into starting writing? Yeah, with a couple of the early books, I, I conceived them very consciously and in some ways very simply as, um, <clears throat> you know, a kind of lab experiment that way. Now, I think it, it, in a way it's, it's more, um, I don't know, anarchic or, or it's gone native and I just, I find myself reaching for all sorts of um, echoes and, and, and resonances um, out of, and it, of course it should be said it's always just out of pleasure, it's excitement it's not sort of like a oh this would be important to do you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, nobody needed to see this happen and it's not going to prove something, it's just enthusiasm that drives any of this um, and yeah I mean it, I, w- I think Chronic City does reflect uh, my discovery of, of Saul Bellow in a way so, so that's not wrong, but I don't, I don't anymore kind of come at it the way I did with those first couple of books with a kind of um, scheme. And anyway, one of the funny things is that I'm often mistaken. I'll, I'll have an you know, overt layer. I'll think, for instance, let me do the searchers but on Mars. You know, uh, At the end of writing that book, I realized I'd completely unconsciously rewritten um, Forster's Passage to India without... Noticing the patterning, I mean, down literally to the fact that the book uh, is centered on a controversial rape or non-rape in a kind of secret cave in the middle of the book. And, th- and that the Indians standing around, I thought of them as Native Americans, but those aliens could just as well be the kind of gnomic, abiding presences of uh, the, the, um, the Hindus in Forster's book, that I'd taken tremendous amounts of his... Uh, kind of um, his motifs out of that book without thinking of them once consciously. So I may be up to one thing and do another thing anyway. And, and in this book, I mean, I was aware of, for instance, with the, 
the central love triangle in this book, I was thinking a lot about Hitchcock's uh, Vertigo, the way Jimmy Stewart is in love with two women who are kind of they they, they both are are the same woman and they both don't exist at the same time. And th- there was this emotional charge that comes out of that. I mean, I, I'm not unique in feeling it. It's a very emotionally charged film for a lot of people. But I was reaching for that with the pattern between Chase and the two women in this book. Um, but then other things come in by by accident, too. And, and, and I'm just, especially with a larger book like this, um, and having, I guess, you know, I'd say grown into the, the process of being the overtly influenced writer, <laughs> the, the happily influenced writer that I've been kind of bragging about being, uh, I don't think about it very schematically at all anymore. But you've kind of formalized that thinking in your critical writing. I mean, you, you, yeah, you, well, you talk then I about write, kind of writing a something and even the implications of who should own culture and, yeah. and you're, you're, a, you're into the whole copyleft yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I got very... Well, you know, and this comes, again, from something that's just in, uh, a native enthusiasm. I didn't, I didn't come to this copyleft position that I ended up taking uh, as a conscious, you know, political, cultural intervention... I came at it because I realized one day I woke up and I, I've always loved sampling. I loved it when you know Bugs Bunny pretended to be Edward G. Robinson. Uh, I loved it when my dad would take me to museums and all the artists that were exciting in the 60s and early 70s, it seemed to me, were doing quotation of some kind or another. It just seemed basic, you know, yeah. from, I mean, not obviously the pop artists, but then, you know, Stuart Davis with signage. And, you know, I just realized... Uh, quotation and appropriation is it thrills me uh, you know and when when sampling came along in music i just felt that same the same part of me that had loved bugs bunny uh you know imitating bogart or or edward g robinson was equally tickled and and that i was so responsive to this that i had to uh find a way to frame it and and describe it maybe we should Wrap it up there, and there might be some drinks, and people can who yeah. have been too shy can more informally ask a question. Great. But um, I hope you write a book about London one day. <laughs> I, I'd like to try. <laughs> thanks, Tom, and thanks for all those great questions from you guys. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 